Hi, this is Jay Bear of Convince and Convert Consulting, and welcome to the new Content Experience Show. Content Experience is the new content marketing. It's not only about reaching audiences where they are, but engaging them with personalized, useful content that matters. On the Content Experience Show, we share strategies, tips, and real-world examples of how leaders are taking their content marketing to the next level. Now, here's your hosts, Randy Frisch from Uberflip and Anna Harak from Convince and Convert Consulting. everybody. Welcome to the Content Experience Show podcast. I'm Anna Harak from Convince and Convert. Randy Frisch from Uberflip won't be joining us today, but that's okay because we have a fabulous guest joining us. Today, we're talking with author and keynote speaker, Roger Dooley. Now, Roger's new book, Friction, is available for pre-order right now, and it comes out in just a few days, so make sure you check it out. Uh, We do have the inside scoop for you today on what the book is about because we actually talk a lot about, no surprises, friction. Now, what you'll discover today is that there's actually two sides of friction, and both can pose some serious problems. The first side is the customer side, where it frustrates our audiences, it costs us sales, and it reduces loyalty. But the other side, which is also the side we don't tend to think about a lot, is actually internal friction within our organizations. Now, that internal friction can destroy productivity, it can reduce employee engagement, and even increase turnover. So we talk a lot about both sides of friction today, including how to spot it and what to do about it. So let's hear from Roger and get the scoop on what we can do about friction. Roger, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to chat with you. Well, I'm super happy to be here, Anna. Thanks for the invite. Yes. Um, so we got to chat a little bit before the show. Um, and we've been chatting over the last couple of weeks as well. Um, but for those of you out there, um, let's get to know Roger. So Roger, would you mind telling everybody just a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, these days and for the last period of years, uh, I have been an author. My first book was Brainfluence. It came out Uh, about eight years ago now, a little less. And uh, my new book, Friction, comes out uh, on May 17. And they're related in a way uh, by the fact that they both apply behavioral science to different degrees. And I got into that because my interest in neuromarketing, which is sort of the intersection of neuroscience and marketing. And what I found over time was that uh, the insights from behavioral science were often more actionable for companies that could not afford to do their own expensive neuromarketing studies. So a lot of my work is focused on that area. But before that, uh, uh, I was a serial entrepreneur uh, for decades, uh, a direct marketing guy in the early days of home computers, uh, co-founded a computer catalog business then. Uh, That morphed into an IT outsourcing business, uh, SEO. And along the way, I co-founded a business called College Confidential, which became uh, the biggest college-bound site, uh, the the busiest site for college-bound students and parents. And it was primarily uh, driven by its community. So it was a very social site where people exchanged information about this really uh, complicated and confusing process uh, that's been in the news a lot lately because of uh, the insane uh, things that people are doing to uh, get into the colleges they want to. I know I was just going to say this podcast could take a total left turn right now if we really wanted to, but we'll keep it. (laughs) 
<laughs> we'll keep it on. Uh, right, right. Well, our, our focus was on, uh, first of all, people helping other people because nobody has all the answers, but uh, yeah. we did not advocate uh, any unethical <laughs> ways uh, to get into a college, but we did help people uh, optimize what they were doing. That's that's good to know. Yes. Yeah. There's been crazy stuff happening with that lately, but uh, yeah, definitely. Oh man, that's, that's like a whole other podcast on its own. Um, well, Roger, I'm, I'm super excited, as I mentioned, to have you here because I actually love behaviors and, and, and neuromarketing. I find it all insanely fascinating, especially when you even consider behaviors like how Disneyland, you know, guides people into um, everything with like sights and sounds and foods and just designs this entire sort of like neural experience that we just don't even sort of process, but we do. I love those sort of inherent behaviors that we don't even know we do. So I'm excited to chat with you about that, but I'm even more excited about friction because this is something that I personally identify with on both sides. Well, I think that you're not unique in that, Anna. Uh, I've been speaking at conferences about friction to varying degrees uh, over the last uh, year or two, uh, sort of testing the waters and refining my ideas. And what I've found is when I talk about friction uh, and then I'm hanging out with the attendees later, maybe we're standing in the lunch line or something like that, they start seeing friction where they probably wouldn't have before. Uh, you know, the, something is difficult to do. There's uh, some kind of a delay in uh, getting what they want, or there's uh, no forks so they can't eat. Immediately, they say, well, that's friction. Uh, so I think that we all experience friction in our daily lives. And, you know, it's a natural thing. But to the extent that you want people to do things that you would like them to do, say, complete an order on your e-commerce site, or uh, perhaps turn into a lead on your lead generation site, or share your content via uh, their own social media channels, uh, friction is your enemy. Any unnecessary effort will uh, reduce the number of people who do what you want them to do. Well, and I love too exactly what you were saying about how, you know, after people talk to you or they or they hear you speak about friction, they all of a sudden recognize it. And I think friction is one of those things that, you know, exactly like you said, we experience it on a daily basis. Like how many times have you said something to the effect of like, all I want to do on this website is X or all I want to do with this brand is Y? Why can't I just do that? And it's like when we are are building these experiences for customers, we oftentimes don't take that into account or we don't see the friction of our customers as marketers. No, it's strange because uh, today we've got such wonderful tools to observe the behavior of our visitors, our customers, our app users. You can analyze uh, uh, everything they do, how long they're on site, how many times they search for something. Uh, where they click, uh, mm -hmm. uh, even if they click on things uh, that aren't clickable, uh, you'll, you can measure <laughs> yeah. that. But people don't use that. I mean, just to relate to what you're saying, Anna, I'm constantly on websites or using apps where uh, after a few seconds, I just sort of shake my head and say, did anybody actually watch a novice user try and do oh. this? Because, you know, I feel like I'm reasonably technically adept, but... Uh, yeah. No, you just, uh, I have to struggle to figure out how they expect me to do things. Now, undoubtedly, it made tremendous sense to the designer uh, and perhaps the other people who are engaged in the process because they know what you're supposed to do. But for the first time user, you know, even the simplest little uh, user observation study would show that, wow, not everybody gets this intuitively. Absolutely. Well, and I think what's funny too is, you know, we understand that we need to remove these friction points, but I don't think we actually understand just how much they cost us. And you have some amazing facts and stats um, from different sources about just what the cost of friction is. Are there a couple that really stand out that can really help put all this into context for our listeners? 
Yeah, I think probably the biggest uh, one that comes to mind is the $4.6 trillion of merchandise that's left in the abandoned e-commerce shopping carts. And to put that in perspective, uh, that's more than twice as much as uh, the $2 trillion in actual e-commerce sales. So uh, there's a tremendous amount of waste there. And if you think about all of the money and effort, uh, uh, the uh, pay-per-click ads, the social media marketing, the content marketing, the SEO, the web design, you know, everything that went into getting those visitors to the site or to the app uh, and get them all the way up to the checkout process and then have them not complete it. It's a tremendous amount of waste and a lot of it is pointless. If you look at why people abandon shopping carts, most of the reasons, most of the top reasons are frictional in nature. Number one being a complex or confusing checkout process. Uh, then beyond that, you've got things like uh, having to set up an account as opposed to being allowed to uh, check out as a guest, but perhaps having to give them your credit card uh, information as opposed to uh, letting them take it from PayPal or someplace where you already have it stored and don't have to go through that part of the process. Uh, and, you know, there's a million things. Even uh, one, one thing I was just looking at today, broken autocomplete. You know, Chrome uh, and Google uh, make it super easy to fill out even long forms. I don't advocate long forms. If you want people to complete a form, right. shorter is better. The fewer fields, the better. But if you do have a form that has fields that need to be completed, Google is very good at auto-populating those things for you. They, they will fill in the blanks. You just start typing Roger in first name, and yeah. immediately uh, it'll fill in the rest of the form for you. But I see probably... 50% of the time or more, there is a problem with the way those forms are coded. And this isn't something that you see, can see by looking at it. You know, if you're the uh, uh, chief marketing officer and you look at the form, it looks great. It uh, looks fine. All the blanks are there. Uh, it's only uh, if you look into the coding that's behind the scenes or if you actually try and place an order that you find out that, gee, uh, well, I populated my first name and my last name okay, but for some reason in the email field, I put my phone number because the coder somehow repurposed the field. In fact, the craziest one I had was uh, just uh, about two days ago, I was registering for a conference. Uh, and every single form populated with the same word, Roger. I typed in my first name. Oh. Somebody had apparently uh, coded it uh, by just replicating the first name field. So like every single field. So like your address, like your street name was Roger. Your city yeah, was yeah. And yeah, my email address, uh, my phone number, everything. So I mean, it was, oh. uh, <laughs> but you know, people don't realize this stuff, Anna. They, uh, yeah. uh, and another, I think, interesting uh, uh, way of looking at it is uh, people don't perceive the true number of steps in their processes, whether it's a checkout mm -hmm. process or anything else. Uh, I was at a behavioral uh, science marketing conference and uh, a firm there that does uh, this kind of analysis for businesses said that the first thing they do is uh, when they're asked to uh, optimize a, a checkout process is ask, well, how many steps are there in the checkout process? And typically, whether it's uh, the marketing person or a coder will say, oh, um, three. Uh, but when they actually go in and examine all of the motions and steps that a real user has to take, which could include uh, scrolling and clicking, uh, changing the focus of uh, the browser so it's in the right field and all these things, it ends up not being three, but more like 25. Uh, and you know, this, this is so true, but people just don't perceive of that as being effort. But all of those little things are effort and friction. And it's so funny too, you know, this has been such a theme on the podcast lately with um, a couple of different topics and a couple of different areas, which is, you know, it's just so funny that as, as consumers and 
within every single day. I mean, we are naturally built as consumers and we are customers, but when you flip that coin and you put it, uh, you know, you make us market something or build an experience for our customers. It's like, we forget what it was ever like to be a consumer. And we put all these roadblocks and these hurdles in the way, and we don't even realize that we do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, people ask for more information than they need. Uh, you know, it's uh, you see a form and suddenly oh, it's asking for a fax number, really? You know, why? Uh, <laughs> how long has this form been there, and why would they possibly want that? Uh, uh, but, you know, these, these things uh, uh, you just see all the time, and people accept them. And I think, you know, to look at it another way, uh, often people just accept that an experience has to be a certain way. Um, in in my book, I talk about uh, Uber, which is a great example of friction reduction. Uh, uh, people put up with taxis for probably 50 or 80 years, pretty much unchanged. You know, the mechanism right. for calling a taxi, for them picking you up, uh, was just about the same uh, with very few differences. People didn't perceive it necessarily as high friction. They figured, well, this isn't the greatest experience, but hey, it's the best we've got uh, until Uber came along. And took almost all the friction out of the process. Yeah. You knew exactly where your driver was. You knew when he was going to arrive at your location. Uh, you knew you how long it was going to take to get to the, the destination and what the route was going to be. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, and then when you get out, uh, there's no fumbling for cash or tips or, uh, you know, trying to do a credit card process, uh, uh, you know, in the backseat of a car. It's just, uh, okay, goodbye. And, uh, you know, they, they made it so frictionless that people absolutely loved it. Uh, and the only defense in most cases, uh, and, you know, something else that's pretty uh, typical, Anna, is that businesses confronted with an obviously better user experience generally don't say, wow, uh, we can do that and maybe even do better. Uh, instead, they fight it. Uh, so mm -hmm. instead of taxi companies getting better at what they do, uh, they try to pass laws to make uh, uh, Uber either illegal or to make life much more difficult for Uber. It was it was the same thing with music sharing, where uh, yeah. Napster showed how uh, easy music storage and downloads could be. Uh, you know, they made it so so simple. And instead of the music companies uh, saying, "Wow, we can adapt this and figure out how to make money off it," as Apple eventually did uh, years and years later, yeah. uh, the music companies took both Napster and even uh, consumers to court over it. So, you know, our natural tendency apparently uh, is not to automatically go for the path of least friction, but just to preserve our existing business model, even if it sucks. I know that's, um, I, you know, it's funny as I actually use that Uber example a lot about just like changing industries and internal changes and, and how critical that is as well. And um, before we jump into that, though, um, we have to take a quick break. But Roger, when we come back, I definitely want to dive more into the other side of the coin of friction. So we talked about the consumer side, but I um, would love to dive deeper into sort of that organizational friction side. Um, because there's a lot there that can be worked out as well. So everybody stick with us. We are going to take a quick break and come back um, with Roger and chat more about friction. Hi, friends. This is Jay Baer from Convince and Convert, reminding you that this show, the Connect Show podcast, is brought to you by Uberflip, the number one content experience platform. Do you ever wonder how content experience affects your marketing results? Well, you can find out in the first ever content experience report, where Uberflip uncovers eight data science-backed insights to boost your content engagement and your conversions. It's a killer report, and you do not want to miss it. Get your free copy right now at uberflip.com slash connex show report. That's uberflip.com slash connex show report. And the show is also brought to you by 
our team at Convince and Convert Consulting. If you've got a terrific content marketing program, but you want to take it to the very next level, we can help. Convince and Convert works with the world's most iconic brands to increase the effectiveness of their content marketing, social media marketing, digital marketing, and word of mouth marketing. Find us at convinceandconvert.com. Do you want to know the proven content marketing formula big brands use to create content, but wish it was in a step-by-step course tailored to your small business needs? Do you also want to know exactly what content to make for whom and when to drive new sales and keep your existing customers? If so, visit contentmarketingclass.com to get started right now with an on-demand work-at-your-own-pace course brought to you by JBear and Convince and Convert. Again, visit contentmarketingclass.com today to accelerate your content marketing efforts and crush your sales goals. Hey everybody, welcome back and we are here with Roger Dooley and we are talking about friction. So before the break, we were talking a lot about friction with customers and, and the cost of what that really means and how we can remove friction with customers to make a better experience. But Roger, you also started to talk about sort of how friction is also changing the business model side of things and also there's internal friction that we experience as well. Definitely. Uh, oh. You know, we talked about the $4.6 trillion uh, wasted in e-commerce shopping carts that ended up being abandoned. Uh, There is a somewhat similar statistic uh, for inside companies and organizations. According to an article in the Harvard Business Review, uh, there's $3 trillion uh, in what the authors called organizational drag, which is, in essence, a friction. Uh, uh, It's things like uh, procedures uh, that end up wasting time, uh, meetings that have too many people and that don't get enough accomplished, uh, emails that get widely distributed and uh, end up causing endless amounts of time just uh, uh, scanning them and deleting them. Uh, All these things uh, that happen inside companies uh, that really... uh, are not necessary. And, and so that $3 trillion is a, a huge number too. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really crazy what uh, uh, companies do. They have procedures that perhaps somebody implemented uh, years ago uh, for some reason, uh, and the, everybody is still doing it. And sometimes, uh, in uh, one case, uh, uh, when these consultants went into an organization and started asking about uh, which rules were causing uh, the most wasted time, some of the things that the people cited as rules weren't even rules. They were just uh, uh, things that people had been doing, uh, and everybody assumed that they had to be done that way. So uh, that's uh, a corollary. And to my mind, Anna, the most important thing is uh, to uh, develop a friction-aware culture in an organization. Mm. Uh, I think that uh, companies that do that uh, can become more efficient internally. At the same time, uh, they're seeing that friction in their customer experience, like we talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, it's once people start seeing friction, uh, they cannot unsee it, uh, and uh, they get really motivated <laughs> to get rid of it, which is a good thing. That is really good. Um, yeah, it's it's insane. I'm sure everybody was nodding along with like your comment about you know being in too many meetings or too many people, and just you know that that cost. So how do people become friction aware within their own organizations? Reading my book would be one in one way, but yes, uh, once absolutely. you start thinking <laughs> about it and uh, see some examples of it and how it's been cured, uh, then I think uh, you start seeing it uh, as it affects you. 
Uh, yeah. you, know, it, you know, some people may or may not uh, get on the bandwagon. I know uh, back, I did a stint as a corporate executive for a while. After being an entrepreneur for many years, uh, I sold a business and ended up uh, as part of the deal joining the company for a while. Uh, and I had a uh, lady that worked for me who was a product manager who was really having difficulty getting her sort of uh, uh, new product uh, strategies developed. Uh, uh, and uh, she seemed to have good ideas, but when we looked at her schedule, she was in meetings for 32 hours a week, uh, typically. And you know, you can imagine uh, if you're in meetings for that long, and then you've got uh, email to deal with and just the usual sorts of stuff, uh, uh, you know, there's no time for any kind of productive work. A week ago on my podcast, uh, I aired an episode with Cal Newport, uh, the author of Deep Work, and he really emphasizes the important uh, importance of having some uninterrupted time where you can get into a flow state. If you have to do creative work or work that requires uh, deep thought, like say coding or designing or something like that, uh, and that if you're constantly interrupted, if you're pulled off uh, for uh, different tasks, if you're getting interrupted by uh, important emails and phone calls and such, uh, you'll never get into that flow state. Right. It's Yeah, it's crazy how just those little tiny interruptions can disrupt your entire train of thought and your entire day. Yeah, there's, uh, there's some evidence that uh, uh, an interruption, uh, if, if you're engaged in some kind of a complex process like a writing code or design process or something, uh, that uh, one interruption uh, takes you 20 minutes to fully recover from and get back uh, to where you were before. Oh, that's insane. That is so insane. Just even just the mental effort to try to get back on track too. And this is why open offices are not a great idea. Uh, yeah, I'm not a fan of open offices. I worked in several and I did not appreciate them um, from a product productivity standpoint. Um, so Roger, question for you, because a lot of times the people who are most likely going to be recognizing friction points are going to be those who are not at the C-suite or even at the manager level. Um, and sometimes bringing up areas of friction can seem sort of... Um, like you're being, you know, maybe just a contrarian or maybe you're um, just kind of causing trouble or just being negative. So how can people start to point out some organizational friction without being seen as that sort of like, uh, you know, uh, Debbie Downer? Right. Well, you don't want to be seen as, well, uh, this person is whining because they don't want to do the work. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they want to do a, take some kind of a shortcut. But being uh, in 32 uh, hours of meetings is a good reason to complain. Right. Yeah. You know, well, <laughs> uh, I think the uh, there does have to be some uh, management buy-in. Now, uh, ideally, uh, at least a mid-level or lower-level manager can sort of start the ball rolling. Uh, but uh, uh, if not, then it's, uh, you know, just have to sort of point out what could be saved, do sort of a cost-benefits analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, it's not like, gee, uh, uh, this is really a pain for me to do. But if you can show that, hey, uh, you know, this would free up uh, 45 minutes of time per week if I didn't have to create this report that nobody reads uh, and I could be doing this other task that, uh, you know, you've been wanting me to do. Uh, you know, that's, that's one way. I'll give you, give you an example of how uh, corporate procedures uh, can uh, just totally get in the way of actual productivity. Uh, and in this case, fortunately, in this example, management buy-in was from the very top and it was Jack Welch uh, when he was CEO at General Electric and his reign there uh, pretty much uh, uh, qualified him as the manager of the 20th century uh, because he, uh, what he accomplished there in terms of growth and profitability and shareholder value 
was amazing. Now, some people question his legacy because uh, after his successor took over, things uh, began to come unglued uh, around the time of the financial crisis. But you really can't argue uh, with what uh, Jack accomplished. And uh, what he did was, first of all, he delayered uh, uh, the a typical sort of bureaucracy in corporations at that time was command and control where uh, one manager would have maybe uh, uh, six or eight subordinates uh, who would then in turn each would have, you know, uh, some similar number of subordinates. Uh, and when you were a large corporation, uh, this created uh, many, many layers of management so that by the time information got to the CEO, uh, it had already been passed through uh, maybe, uh, you know, 10 or 15 different uh, filters. Uh, he delayered, uh, made the organizations much flatter uh, so that uh, communication could have uh, happened that way. And then in a later iteration, uh, and, and he saved uh, uh, massive amounts of money in the process. He ended up taking uh, uh, well over 100,000 jobs out of the company, which may or may not be good, but he made them uh, uh, much more efficient, much more profitable uh, by uh, this combination of delayering and also uh, just uh, getting rid of operations that were not profitable for the company. But uh, then uh, he did something else. He sort of blew up all the barriers so that uh, people could talk across functions and across layers of management. Because even then, uh, there was sort of a protocol. If sales wanted to talk to manufacturing about something, they would go through a chain of command, uh, up through their chain of command, who would then go across to manufacturing and then uh, down through there. Uh, he stopped that uh, from happening. Uh, he said, okay, if you want to talk to somebody, you can. And in one meeting, uh, he asked people, well, what, what can we do to make life easier? And these were uh, hourly workers, union workers in the meeting, which for them being asked, uh, you know, what would be helpful to you was kind of a novel thing for management because they were uh, often uh, in the past uh, sort of on opposite ends of the table. But uh, uh, one uh, machine operator said, well, okay, uh, you know, I'm handling sharp metal pieces uh, all day in my machine, and um, I, I use work gloves, and every week or two, um, these gloves wear out, and I have to go get a new one. Uh, I have to, uh, to do that, I have to leave my machine, leave my building, go to the building where the tool crib is, I uh, have to fill out a requisition form for a new pair of gloves, then I'll find a supervisor to approve it, get the gloves, uh, go back to my workstation. And depending on how long it takes to find a supervisor and everything else takes, uh, it, uh, this could waste an hour or two of time every uh, time it happens. Oh, my God. Uh, and uh, they said, well, why don't we just have a box of gloves uh, there? And, well, somebody explained, well, uh, uh, some previous managers are afraid that the workers would steal the gloves uh, if they didn't have a procedure for getting them. So the solution was simple put a box of gloves by the guy's workstation right. uh, and when he needs one, he'll take some. And you know, the uh, loss from uh, theft is going to be absolutely minimal, if not zero. Uh, and compare that to the huge amount of time and uh, productivity that uh, was gained by that pr process. But you know, nobody ever really questioned whether it was essential that uh, getting a new pair of gloves should take an hour or two until uh, they looked at it. Wow. So speaking up is uh, uh, really one of the first ways to do it. But I would put it uh, not in terms of uh, this is a disagreeable effort for me, but in terms of uh, how much time and money it'll save the company. Nice. I love it. Yeah. Solid, solid advice. Start with the benefits, not just the problem. Give a solution plus 
um, what's in it for everybody. So Roger, I know you had mentioned that the other best way to reduce friction is to go read your book. So I know it comes out very, very soon, um, May 17th. Where can everybody pick up that book? Well, on May 17th, it should be available wherever one normally buys books. Uh, uh, it's already listed at uh, uh, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and the other major sites. And uh, assuming uh, the trucks roll when they should, uh, hopefully it'll be in the bookstores too then. Nice. Well, I'm really excited to read it. Um, Roger, thank you so much for being on the show today and walking us through some of those friction points, both from the customer perspective and the internal organizational perspective. Um, Everybody stick around though, because we are going to chat with Roger now that we've gotten to know the professional side of Roger. We're going to get to know Roger on the personal side. So stick around and we are going to have um, a bit of fun after this break. Hey everyone, I wanted to take just a few seconds today to talk to you about Emma. Emma is an email marketing platform that helps you connect with your audience and grow lasting relationships. They're awesome. They offer really intuitive tools to build and automate emails with powerful segmentation and reporting too. And the big difference is they're focused on you. Between their award-winning support and their pro services team, they make sure every customer has success with their email marketing. Seriously, they are amazing. You can learn more and request a demo today at myemma.com slash J is awesome. Again, that's myemma.com slash J is awesome. All right, Roger. So we got to know the professional side of you. Let's chat a little bit more personal. So I know that you are a Game of Thrones fan, correct? That's correct. And we are just less than a week away from the finale, or sorry, the season premiere of the final season. Right. So just curious out there, um, and anybody who hasn't seen the show up until this point, you might want to go ahead and just stop listening now and then go watch Game of Thrones and then come back and listen. Curious, what are your predictions for the season? Like, how do you think it's all going to come to an end? I think uh, many people will die. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the one certainty. Uh, uh, this is true. Even, even the actors themselves uh, don't know how it will end. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, they have uh, resurrected people in the past. And uh, well. uh, so really, uh, there's not necessarily a logical path for them to follow. But I'm expecting uh, some really epic battle scenes uh, between dragons and armies and uh, undoubtedly some uh, palace intrigue along the way. Absolutely. All right. Who do, do you, is there anybody you think will end up on the Iron Throne? Um, you know, I have a photo of myself on the Iron oh, Throne. Uh, there you but go. I'm uh, holding uh, back until it gets a little bit closer to post. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, uh, in fact, I saw some speculation that uh, maybe uh, nobody would be on it or something. Oh, but, interesting. Uh, uh, I, uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, certainly there are some people who you, who you would uh, like to see on it, perhaps more than others, the likable characters, uh, as opposed to the evil characters. But uh, I guess we'll see. Very true. I know. That show has so many twists and turns. You never know where it's going to go, um, which is, I think, why I like it so much. Nothing is sacred on that show. Well, yeah, it really set a new standard uh, for TV where uh, uh, TV tends to be predictable because, yeah. you know, actors have contracts and, uh, uh, you know, when when they finally kill somebody off, usually it's because there was a contract dispute where uh, uh, in this show, uh, right right in the first season, uh, they killed off a few major characters. And it's like, whoa, this is, this is different. 
Yeah, I know. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, they took kill your darlings to the most literal sense. So, right, right. Uh, I mean, who would have expected Sean Bean and Ned Stark? Uh, you know, I thought, boy, this is a guy that could carry the whole show for seasons and boom, he's gone. Yeah, it's, I that know. That was a spoiler for anybody, but that was season one. You know what? They've had about nine years to see it up until that point. So, that wasn't really a, too big of a spoiler, but. Awesome. All right. Well, Roger, thank you so much. Um, we will have to catch up at some point and see where we're at on the Game of Thrones um, predictions and, and spoilers and all that later this season. But um, thank you so much for being on. It was really great to have you here. It's been a lot of fun, Anna. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Everybody else, thank you so much for joining as well. Um, I will be joined again next week with the amazing Randy Frisch from Uberflip. Um, until then, please go ahead and leave us a comment um, wherever you listen to this podcast. Let us know what you want to hear next, what topics you like, um, and we will talk to you next week. This is Jay Bear, and thanks for listening to the Content Experience Show. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentexperienceshow.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. That's contentexperienceshow.com. The Content Experience Show is sponsored by Convince and Convert Consulting and by Uberflip. It's produced by my team and I at Convince and Convert. If you're interested in being a guest or a sponsor on the show, just go to convinceandconvert.com.